Welcome to episode 10 of Cybernia, the podcast that explores science in Ireland and beyond, in association with Discover Science and Engineering. You can download the latest podcast from cybernia.ie, follow us on Twitter at Cybernia, or friend us on facebook.com slash Cybernia. And if you want to email us, it's podcast at cybernia.ie. I'm Marie Bourne, and with me today in the studio are Trina O'Connell, Maria Daly, and Lenny Antonelli. This week, we will talk to astrophysicist Turlock Downs to see if recent observations by the European Space Agency could challenge Einstein's general theory of relativity. We also kick off our new science tours of Ireland with some ancient science at Newgrange, and we ask neuroscientist Professor Shane O'Mara if brain training really works. Cybernaut Lenny talks to Alan Giltonan of Blackrock Castle Observatory about the last ever space shuttle launch. First up is our chat with Dr. Turlock Downs, astrophysicist with Dublin City University and the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. He brings us on a whirlwind tour of Einstein's general theory of relativity, string theory, and why the quantum graininess of space could change everything. Turlock, if you could, in a nutshell, explain Einstein's general theory of relativity to us. Um... Okay, well, it's, it's a big theory and it's quite complicated, so it's not easy to fit into a nutshell. But one fundamental idea really behind the theory of relativity, and it is that, um, well, there are two, I suppose, but one of them is that uh, the speed of light has to be constant in all reference frames. So it does, if you're looking at a star and you travel really fast towards a star, you're looking at the light coming out, you should still measure it as going at three times 10 to the 10 centimetres per second. Or if you are moving away from the star really fast, you should still measure that light coming from the star at the same speed. When you follow that through, you end up with uh, funny things like when people go faster, they seem heavier and this kind of thing. That was the spe- that, that basically, all those ideas gave rise to the special theory of relativity. Um, and then Einstein started to try to look at gravity because there are issues since um, traveling fast makes people seem heavier. There are implications then for gravity because gravity depends on people's mass or uh, the mass of planets and the stars and people and whatever. Um, so when Einstein looked at, the, at generalizing that special theory of relativity to include gravity, he ended up with this monster theory, which is what we know as the general theory of relativity, which includes the fact that light has to be the speed of light has to be constant in all frames of reference, but also includes the effects of gravity. And what you end up with is that gravity isn't exactly a force in the same way that other forces are forces. Like if uh, if you have two uh, positive electric charges, they push one another apart, or if you've got a bit of iron and a magnet, then they, they are attracted. So it's not quite a force like those. It's as in it's not as cut and dry, or it, no? It's a different. It's a force of a different uh, of a different nature. It's actually okay. gravity is simply something which appears due to the frame of reference that you're in, and it's really due to the curvature of space in your frame of reference. So it's, it's a very different kind of thing. It's got to do with the curvature of space-time. It's got to do with the fabric of space-time. It's not got to do with what these other forces uh, operate on. And so in that sense, gravity has always seemed like a very different type of force. So basically, if you have a massive object, it curves space. And uh, when you try to go in what seems to you like the shortest distance between two points, and space is curved, you actually move in a curve. So it's the same as when you're trying to fly from Dublin to New York. You don't go straight across east-west. You go up north and then come back down again because it's shorter that way, and so the, the airlines save fuel by going that way. So you, in order to go on the, on, the, on the shortest route, you actually go on a curve. And the same way in space-time, uh, where you've got a big, massive object and you're moving close to it because space is curved, you move on a curve, and so that's exactly what the Earth is doing around the sun. It's, mo- it's moving at the shortest distance it can through space, but that means that it goes on a curve. 
and it's actually moving in an, an ellipse around the sun. And that's, that's how gravity works. That's what it's all about. It's purely to do with curving space-time. And so things, when they're trying to go by the shortest distance, they move in curves, not straight lines. So it's very well understood and rock solid. <laughs> uh, it's understood. Let's see. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, the, the concepts behind relativity are very hard to get your head around for everybody. Uh, even the people who are absolute expert relativists, it's still very difficult. There has been no observation which has contradicted general relativity, and there have been lots of observations done in order to test relativity. So there have been lots of observations. They all support the general theory of relativity except when you come to quantum mechanics. And here you have a real problem where in, in quantum mechanics, you have this, this effect whereby it seems like you're able to transmit information from one point to another infinitely quickly. In particular, you're able to transmit information from one point to another faster than the speed of light, which according to the general theory of relativity should not be possible. Okay. <laughs> so... Yeah, well, this is one of the fundamental conflicts between quantum mechanics and general relativity. Mm -hmm. So there's something called, uh, if you have an electron, if you have two electrons, say, there's something called um, spin, which is something that electrons have. And it is just as if they're, it's not quite the same now, but it's, it, it, you can think of it just as if they're, they're, they're little balls and they're spinning. Yeah. And if you have one that's, that's got, and spin is conserved, so you can't change, if you've got a system and you've got one electron with spin up, let's say, and the other electron with spin down, this is the way we refer to it, you don't need to yeah. worry too much about the details, then the net spin of those two electrons together is zero. One up, one down, add them together, you get zero. Uh, you can't change the spin of that system unless you impose an external force. Now, in quantum mechanics, an electron never has exactly spin up or spin down. It's kind of got a mixture of the two at the same time. It and depends on when you look at it. Or there's a probability that you will measure uh, that the electron has spin up and a probability that you'll measure the electron has spin down. So if you look at an electron now and you look and then say spin up, this is the interesting thing. If you, if you start off with a, a two electrons and you know that the net spin is zero, then you take one of the electrons away and you put it over the other side of the world. And then you look at this electron that you've got here in the room beside you and you measure its spin, then instantaneously you will see either it's got spin up or spin down with some probability. But you will measure one of them. You'll see it's got spin up. And at that instant, you know for a fact that the electron at the other side of the world has got spin down because the net spin is conserved and the net spin has to be zero. How did they know they're so far apart? They've done, they, you, you do these measurements. It's, it's yeah. actually with photons that they've done these measurements, yeah. but they've done it and they've actually demonstrated that, that this is the case and that, in particular, uh, they're able to measure these spins with such ac timing accuracy that they're able to say that the signal between them, if a signal has to go between them, it would have, ha have had to have gone faster than the speed of light. Fascinating. So that, but as you said, that doesn't quite fit in with... No, yeah. no. That whole thing is called action at a distance. Uh, and it doesn't, fit, it doesn't fit in at all with, with general theory of relativity. So the idea then is to try to marry those two theories. And um, since general theory of relativity has a space-time as being a fundamental kind of fabric within which we all exist... Uh, the idea behind quantum mechanics then, when you're trying to marry the two, is say, well, okay, quantum mechanics says that everything is quantized. You have energy, time, momentum, all these things, they're all quantized. So let's quantize space. Let's quantize space-time then, if you're in general relativity. And so instead of uh, space-time being a smooth fabric that we all see, it's actually made, it, you, you actually can't move from one point to another arbitrarily close point. You have to move in little jumps, 
all the time, and so it's quantized. They'll, they'll, you'll move in little quantum. Mm. Um, so it's not smooth. It's actually kind of pixelated, if you want to think of it like yeah. that. There's a refresh rate that we can't really see, like like those yeah. really bad refresh rates monitors. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Or the really low resolution when you can see the pixels yeah, on the letters yeah. and all this. Um, so there's little blocks of space-time. Now, when you do that, it actually gets really neat for, for a very short time, for about half page of calculations. It gets really neat, and you end up very quickly coming out with this idea that you actually don't have uh, four dimensions, that is three space and one time. You have 11, or you have 22, or you have 31, or whatever it is but there, there is certain I think I can hear certain, our listeners heads exploding right now <laughs> <laughs> well yeah okay so there is certain it, it gets it gets neat in a way but unfortunately and, and very quickly once you start to quantize space and time you end up with what we call string theory um, which is a, a much more kind of developed version of this idea where you just quantize space and time unfortunately string theory isn't able to make any um, observational predictions or hasn't been able to make any observational predictions however one of the standard things that you would expect is that this these little jumps these the, um, in, in space time would be of a certain size and that size is called the Planck scale because in quantum mechanics the smallest kind of scale that you can measure is the Planck scale that's what's believed to be the case and that's, that's very small that's, I think it's about 10 to the minus 34 of a metre uh, so it's really, really tiny. Now, these latest observations then by uh, the Integral Telescope have been able to demonstrate that these little, these little quanta in space-time have to be way, way smaller than the Planck scale, like 12 orders of magnitude smaller than the Planck scale, uh, which is a real surprise. Um, and that is one thing which will be able to test at least some of the theories uh, that we have of... Um, uh, for string theory and so on. So it's actually, it's it's very good that it's different. It's not disappointing for string theory. It's actually good because it helps um, test it really in the long run, <laughs> even though it messes up a lot of careers, maybe people who spend disapp- their entire lives looking It'll be at disappointing for some string theorists. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, at least it means that string theory is getting into the realms of actually being a theory because... You know, string theory isn't a theory or hasn't been a theory until now. It's been a hypothesis. Not, yeah. It's not developed enough to be a theory. But, but perhaps now, when, when they're actually able to make contact with some kinds of observations, then maybe we can start calling it um, a theory or the various different string theories. We can actually start calling them theories. So it is a real challenge. Uh, and these results are absolutely fascinating. It's, they really pose some serious questions for string theory. Uh, which is good because it, 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 it that challenges the the string theorists to actually move on and, and try to deal with these with these issues and see what they can learn from them. Where does that fit with the grand unified theory? <laughs> well, you can't have a grand unified theory unless you manage to to unify quantum mechanics and gen, and the general theory of relativity because. You know, with quantum mechanics, we can do our observations, and we can't. You know, every every observation at really small scales that we do um, supports quantum mechanics. Every observation at large scales that we do to test general general relativity supports general relativity. And yet we have this fundamental contradiction between the two, so we have to unify them. At the moment, the most obvious way of unifying them is to go through this business of quantizing space-time, and that leads to string theory. But string theory hasn't been able to... We haven't been able to test string theory until now. But but these integral uh, results... They basically restrict what the grand unified theory could be because, you know, you need observations to control what theories are valid and and what theories aren't valid. Um, And uh, so these observations should move us closer. Yeah. They should move us closer, but they're definitely a challenge. 
Anyone who's ever played brain training games like Nintendo's Dr. Kawashima has probably hoped they work, but is there any proof? Cybernaut Sylvia asks Trinity professor Shane O'Mara in her Ask a Scientist slot. Uh, brain training games, do they make you smarter or improve your memory? So the evidence here is, is, very, uh, is very equivocal. Um, I, there was a large uh, analysis published in Nature last year uh, suggesting that uh, brain training games actually had very limited or no effect. Uh, but there is, there is uh, or quite a bit of data starting to come to light suggesting that particular types of games can improve particular performance on particular uh, types of cognition. So a paper, for example, uh, or, which has been often replicated now, uh, shows that uh, where spatial cognition is concerned, this is your ability to think about three-dimensional space and to get around in three-dimensional mm-hmm. space, that playing uh, three-dimensional action games actually does improve that capacity and can do that for uh, quite some period of time. And there is now some data also suggesting that working memory can be improved a bit with particular uh, uh, brain training regimes. But um, there aren't enough large-scale randomised control trials uh, on this to suggest that there is a a profound and general effect, and uh, I wouldn't be inclined to believe that there is, at least not on the basis of the data that's in the literature at the moment. So the jury is still out on that one. Lenny and Trina chatted to Alan Giltanan of Blackrock Castle Observatory about the last ever space shuttle launch and asked him about NASA's plans for the future of manned space exploration. Uh, you, you're, a, you're a senior researcher at, um, at Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork um, and you held this, this shuttle part launch party uh, last Friday for the public to watch the last ever uh, NASA shuttle launch. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, last Friday shuttle launch, um, exactly what its mission is and, and how the shuttle went? Absolutely. The, so the last Friday's launch is, is the last shuttle launch that will ever happen. Um, it's, uh, it was the shuttle Atlantis launched from the Kennedy Space Center. Um, its, its mission um, is, is it's a re, refueling and restocking mission for the International Space Station. Um, it's, it's taking up a module called Raffaello, which, uh, which effectively has about five tons worth of uh, food and tools and various bits and bobs needed to, to keep the International Space Station going for uh, about a 12-month period. Uh, the launch itself went, went very well. Uh, there were some concerns previously, just before the launch and leading up to the launch, about the weather. Um, it was uh, a 70% no-go on a weather front, uh, but luckily uh, the the weather just happened to be good. We, we got that 30%, so to speak, um, uh, and it was able to launch. There was also a lightning strike about 24 hours before the shuttle launch, which uh, caused some concern. Um, but uh, thanks to redundancy and protocol, they were able to rule it out as a as a problem, um, and launch was a go. And other than that, it was almost the perfect launch. Now, can you tell us a bit about why NASA is is retiring the shuttles and and what its plans are for, if any, for manned space flights in the future? Sure. Um, okay. So the shuttle itself is being retired um, for a couple of reasons, um, mainly because it is uh, it's an extremely complex vehicle. Uh, it is. It's, it only serves a specific purpose, which is to carry heavy payloads into low orbit. It, it's not a great vehicle for going deep into space. Um, it's also quite expensive. 
So for those three reasons, actually it was in 2004, uh, it, it, the, the initiative to retire uh, the, the shuttle was, was, was put through, because as you can imagine, uh, being such a big program, it, 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 it takes a good few years to retire something like this. Um, so in two, 2004 it was put through. Um, it's been retired this year. Uh, as, as I said, that the last shuttle is, is up there at the moment. It'll come back in uh, roughly 10 days' time from now on July 20, um, after which there will be effectively no more shuttles. Um, the, the, because it's such a, a complex vehicle, uh, it, it's also quite expensive. So it, it costs almost half a billion dollars per launch, which is quite expensive compared to the Russian equivalent. Um, so there are a number of reasons why it, it is being um, why it is being retired. The upcoming or the, the latest, the next generation of manned uh, space flights is, is a, a system called the Orion. Um, it is very similar to Apollo. It's more of a capsule type system. Um, it is scheduled to launch in 2016, although that's unlikely to happen with budget cuts. It's, it's probably going to be more like 2018. Uh, that's going to be a four-person vehicle that is designed to go into deep space, effectively. What do you think have been the sort of the crowning achievements of the shuttle program? What do you think are, are its greatest accomplishments? The crowning achievement of the shuttle program uh, has, has, without a shadow of a doubt, is, is the International Space Station. Without okay. the shuttle, the International Space Station would not exist. Um, the heavy payload capability, which no other launch vehicle system currently has, uh, compared to the shuttle, is 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 second to none. Um, all of the mod- all of the big modules. So you have a, a an American, a Russian, a European, and a Japanese. They're the kind of four to five main modules on the International Space Station, and pretty much all of them were lifted up by the space shuttle. Now, without the space shuttle, they wouldn't have gotten up there. So for me. Uh, the, definitely the crowning achievement is the inter- International Space Station. But you can't forget what, what, what else it has done. It has done Hubble, and anyone who's seen any Hubble images will straight away say, Absolutely. wow, what an amazing telescope, what an amazing image. Um, but it has also lifted up numerous uh, 40 to 50 commercial satellite systems. Uh, so it, it has done an enormous amount for mankind. In, also, for me, you can't rule out the, the romantic aspect of the space shuttle. It's an immense vehicle. And to be able to, to lift it up and to glide it back in, because don't forget, it, it launches vertically and lands horizontally. And, and to be able to do that, it's, it's, it's an immense achievement. Absolutely, yeah. It's a real iconic piece of equipment. Everyone has models of them from when they were small. Do you think anything is going to replace that in our imaginations? Um, they're gearing, as I said, the Orion project, which is the next generation, yeah, but it, it's not going to be a re-entry vehicle in the, in the form of the shuttle. It's, it's going to be Apollo-like. Um, that's the next generation. They're, they're gearing to really, really launch that as a deep space uh, system. So what we'll probably see is that the next generation is going to be more engaged with deep exploration, so landing on the moon, lunar uh, lunar excursions, lunar habitat, and then follow that on to Mars. Well, quite exciting stuff. Um, 
just to finish up, you're a senior researcher at Blackrock Castle Observatory, which is which is affiliated to Cork Institute of Technology. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the kind of astronomical research that's taking place at at, at Blackrock Castle Observatory? Absolutely. So what we do is is we develop instruments and we look at very particular types of of phenomenon. They're they're very exotic. They're very big and powerful. The main thing we look at is is something called supermassive black holes. Okay, so these are some of the most massive, explosive, and distant objects in the entire universe. Uh, and and that's what that's the main thing we look at. We also look for uh, extrasolar planets. So that's planets revolving around stars other than our own sun. Now these are all close to us in let's say galactic terms, but nonetheless are quite intriguing because they really are the is there life out there stuff. Um, so we look at very far, very big, and yet at the same time very close, very imaginative, and very very close to our, to our own hearts in terms of is there life out there. That's certainly enough to, to fuel the imagination. Alan, thanks very much for joining You're very welcome. On the first stop of Cybernia's Science Tour of Ireland, Gerard Cunningham visits the Hill of Tara and explores some ancient science at Newgrange. Where do you start talking about the science of Ireland? Well, for the first of what I hope may be a series about scientific spots of interest in Ireland, I'm here at the Hill of Tara. Tara might not seem like an obvious starting point for a series on scientific sites in Ireland, but it's in the middle of the Tara Scrine Valley. Nearby you have sites like Dolph, Noth, and Newgrange. Newgrange in particular is famous for being, as the brochure puts it, older than the pyramids, one of the oldest man-made structures in the world. So looking around this valley, you have history, mythology, linguistics, anthropology, and astronomy. It's also, by the way, a magnificent day, bright sunshine. We haven't had much of a summer this year, but this day you certainly know it's summer. A few miles away from here is Newgrange, which does science incredibly well. 5,000 years ago, the people who built Newgrange measured when the sun rose and where, and they built a monument that to this day marks the winter solstice. A central chamber allows a single shaft of light to arrive in on the day of the solstice and the day before and after, marking a calendar. That takes observation, measurement, and the testing of a theory about how the world works. That's probably the earliest example of science in Ireland, and that's why I came here. You can also visit Newgrange and other monuments at Douth and Noth, although there is a waiting list to get on some tours, so great is the demand. But for an introduction to archaeology in Ireland, and indeed other disciplines, from astronomy to linguistics, you could do worse than visit Tara. And down below, there's a coffee shop where you can enjoy a cup of tea or coffee and some cakes and purchase some books to find out more about the site. There are worse ways to spend a sunny summer Sunday. And Maria, you have some events for us um, for the next few weeks, don't you? 
Yeah, thanks, Marie. Um, the Dinosaur Petting Zoo is visiting Killarney Summer Festival on the 16th and 17th of July and Galway Arts Festival between the 19th and 21st of July. It promised to be an extraordinary performance that takes kids and adults on an interactive prehistoric journey through an incredible cast of dinosaurs that inhabited our world millions of years ago. Tickets are on sale now and for more information see killarneysummerfest.com and galwayartsfestival.ie. The Science Gallery's Summer Exhibition Elements is now open. The exhibition explores the beauty of the elements, the design icon that is the periodic table, and stirs up some reactions in the atomic kitchen. For more information, see sciencegallery.com. Dublin Skillshare are hosting a free class by Stephen Howell, Institute of Technology, Telecomputing Department, on the concepts of minimal graphics programming, and shows you how to interface with external devices like Connect in Science Gallery on the 21st of July. For more information, see at dubskillshare and sciencegallery.com. And that's our show for today. And thank you to all our guests, listeners and Near FM, and of course our producer Gavin Byrne. Grab the latest podcast from cybernia.ie, follow us on Twitter at cybernia, or friend us on facebook.com forward slash cybernia, and email us at podcast at cybernia.ie.